The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Wednesday edition, PFTPM from Hilton Head, South Carolina. Wednesday, July 12th. Three for three so far. Managed to answer the bell each morning despite varying levels of alcoholic consumption the night before. Last night, not as aggressive as the first two nights. I'm starting to feel the cumulative effect. It's getting a little bit harder and harder to wake up each morning. Hopefully, I will continue to wake up each morning. It is better than the alternative. I was extra sore today, though, because my three nephews had me playing this game called Spike Ball that I think I had seen on Shark Tank at some point and thought it looked kind of stupid, but also oddly intriguing. You've got a round net and you bounce a ball off of it or smack a ball off of it. It's like volleyball, but instead of over a net, it's into a net. So we played that for a while and I realized after I sat down following that experience that the wet packed sand has about as much give as artificial turf. I was feeling it. We should have played on grass instead of on wet sand because all of the impact that my feet were making against the wet sand was shooting right back up into my calves, knees, hips, thighs, hamstrings, and feet. So they want to play again today. I don't know that I can survive. I barely did yesterday. And I can barely walk today, but it was fun. It was a fun experience. And uh, I wasn't as bad at it as I thought I would be. Then again, my bar was very low. The bar is high for hard knocks. Now that we know that it will be the New York Jets for the first time since 2010. They were one of the four teams that could not deny the assignment, even though they clearly didn't want to do it. And they still don't want to do it. But they have been told they are doing it. It's really the first time that a team that didn't want to do it is being told they have to do it. There's always been someone willing, whether it was one of the teams that could be told to do it said they will, or some other team from off the board wanted to do it. First time in the history of the series where someone is being told with the use of this formula league created within the past 10 years or so of who can be compelled in any given year to do it, that they are actually compelling someone to do it. And look, it's good for the series. It's good for HBO. It's good for NFL films because the Jets are going to be good for business, even if the Jets don't want to be part of it. And they need to pivot, I think, psychologically toward accepting it, because if this is allowed to be an irritant and a distraction, it's going to keep them from doing what they need to do. They just need to accept it. OK, the camera's going to be here. The microphone's going to be here. We're going to have to find time to make sure that we carefully edit and choose and call out any comments or scenes that could cause problems. We need to make sure Aaron Rodgers doesn't become upset with anything we choose to include. And of course, Aaron Rodgers is going to be the focal point of the series and for good reason, but he may not want anything he says to be used against him. 
And he may ultimately disagree with the decisions the Jets make about what scenes will make it and what scenes won't, what comments will make it and what comments won't. I said that several weeks ago. It could be an, an issue between player and team at a time when everything is good. The first test is, will the Jets be wise enough to leave out the things that Aaron Rodgers wouldn't want in? And how involved will he be? I mean, if I'm the Jets, I just say, hey, Aaron, when it's time for us to look at the rough cut and decide what's going to make it and what's not, you come with us. It, it takes an hour, probably will take longer than that because you, you'll watch it and then you go back and what about this, what about this, what about this? But let him have a seat at the table. Let him have a say in what makes it and what doesn't because he's ultimately going to be upset potentially about the decisions you make without him. Get him involved in that process and reduce the potential for friction to emerge before the first regular season game is even played. But most fans are going to be happy with the idea that it's the Jets. Jets fans should be leery about this potential impact of the Jets not wanting to do it and the Jets having to figure out a way to do it that will placate Aaron Rodgers and keep him from coming to any conclusions that maybe the Jets aren't this oasis of football enjoyment that he previously thought that they were. When I first saw that the announcement had been made or leaked or whatever today that the Jets will be the Hard Knocks team, my thought was, boy, that's a great way to distract attention from the lengthy ESPN article about the John Gruden emails. Now, the headline of the article, and I, I was confused when I saw it because they're selling this as this great in-depth report on how the leak of the John Gruden emails brought down Daniel Snyder. Well, all due respect, we already knew that. Anybody who was paying attention knew that Dan Snyder was free and clear. They had brushed the Beth Wilkinson investigation under the rug. They had essentially given Daniel Snyder a slap on the wrist. They didn't force him to sell the team, even though Wilkinson would have recommended it in writing if they had asked for written recommendations. It was done. It was over. He had escaped. The Gruden emails gave the story renewed life, and it got Congress on the case. There was something that just felt wrong about the Gruden emails being being leaked selectively, even though Gruden got what he deserved. The fact that those emails were leaked selectively from a trove of 650,000 emails that someone has the keys to, it just felt wrong. And then there were emails leaked from Jeff Pash to Bruce Allen. Bruce Allen to Jeff Pash made Pash look bad. But the bottom line is, if you were following the story, you were aware already that the leak of the Gruden emails was the first domino in a chain that ultimately resulted in Daniel Snyder reluctantly selling the team. I think the far bigger impact of this story, even though it's not presented that way, it's not sold that way. After I read the whole thing, and I did read the whole thing. I just developed for the first time a theory as to what happened and how the Gruden emails came to light. And one thing that's clear is Gruden is serious about taking down the NFL, not the entire sport, but the league office and the commissioner. Gruden is going after Roger Goodell. Gruden claims that the NFL and Goodell leaked the emails. Now, some have suggested that Dan Snyder is the one who leaked the emails. But I think what happened, and this is just my opinion based upon reading the report from ESPN and being involved every step of the way in the twists and turns. 
this is a great way to take a step back and consider what's going on here or what went on or what might have gone on, because I still don't know. And we'll only find out if John Gruden's lawsuit is permitted to proceed in open court and he's allowed to engage in discovery and find out through the use of forensic digital experts who will go in and piece together email accounts and text messages and come to a conclusion pretty clearly as to where that electronic footprint leads and who is it that sent the emails first to the Wall Street Journal and then to the New York Times. You're never going to get it from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, but you will get it electronically from whoever communicated it to them. My thought was that Snyder leaked the emails to the league office as sort of a clumsy peace offering, knowing that there's friction and tension between Roger Goodell and John Gruden, and John Gruden has long been an irritant of Roger Goodell. And some of that comes through pretty clearly in the ESPN story. So Snyder gift wraps the Gruden emails and gives Goodell a way to push Gruden out of the league for good. That's when the league uses the media. Again, this is just a theory. The league uses the media to activate this plan to get rid of Gruden. And it was a two-step process. We, we all saw it coming. Step one, the Demora Smith email was leaked to the Wall Street Journal. And the ESPN report has quotes from a phone call between Roger Goodell, Jeff Pash, and Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, basically with Goodell and Pash saying to Davis, what are you going to do about this? You need to do something about this. And at one point, reportedly, from the ESPN article, Goodell says, more emails are coming. Well, how's he know that? Does he know that the New York Times already has it? Is he just guessing accurately? Or was it a warning? Was it a message that Mark Davis failed to properly appreciate and act upon? Hey, Mark. You better do something now because it's only going to get worse. So you may as well just do it now before it gets any worse. So what happens? The email comes out on a Friday. They have this conversation reportedly. Mark Davis tries to find a way to keep Gruden. And then Monday, three days later, here comes more emails. And by Monday night, John Gruden was out. That was the moment that Davis realized, yeah, I need to do something. So this is just common sense, circumstantial evidence. Nobody's ever going to admit to anything. But the reality is, unless they were using burner phones or completely untraceable accounts to communicate this information, and I doubt that they were taking it all that seriously. I doubt they foresaw what could happen. But unless they've covered their tracks, if Gruden is able to conduct full-blown discovery, Gruden is going to find out. His lawyers are going to find out. The experts that they hire will find out who leaked the information. And I will not be surprised if Gruden's instincts are right, that it was the league, after receiving the information from Dan Snyder, orchestrating a two-step process. One, the initial leak to the Wall Street Journal. And then two, when Mark Davis didn't get the hint and act upon the first one, more emails leaked to the New York Times. 
And my sense is more and more would have come out until Davis finally did what he had to do. Now, again, Gruden sent the emails. Gruden's responsible. But there's a deeper question here about taking a sliver of 650,000 emails that were collected as part of this Washington commander's investigation and weaponizing them. Remember, that was my concern at the time. What else is in there that they can use just as a, a blank check to go after anyone they want to go after? Supposedly, Bruce Allen told John Gruden that there's evidence in there that incriminates the entire league in that batch of 650,000 documents. So even though I've got no qualms about what happened with Gruden and the Raiders and how this all kind of caught up to him, I see his point. And, you know, the NFL is going to keep wrapping itself in the idea that Gruden sent these horrible, awful emails. So let's focus on that. Let's not focus on what we did. The fact that Gruden did something he shouldn't have done does not give the NFL license to use those things in a way that bring a guy down, calculated to bring him down, strategically targeted in order to take him out. So what we may find out, and we're still caught in this initial step of the NFL trying to force the entire thing into the secret rig kangaroo court of arbitration, because if that happens, we don't find any of this out. That's why they do it. That's why they want everything in arbitration. They don't want stuff to come to light. If they ultimately lose that effort, and they will take it to the highest court in the land. I think it's currently pending at the Nevada Supreme Court. I'm sure they'll file a petition for consideration by the U.S. Supreme Court, just like they did when they tried to bootstrap an arbitration argument together against St. Louis over the Rams case. It delayed the case by several years. But then once the Supreme Court decided not to take the case, that laid the foundation for the eventual settlement of the claim because they didn't want all that coming out. Now, they did take some discovery, and there was some unfortunate stuff that came out that proved that there was lying and more lying and more lying that was occurring by the Rams and by the league office. I think before we ever get to discovery in Gruden's case, that's when somebody's going to show up with a big old pot of money as an offer to John Gruden. And it's easy for Gruden to say, I'll never settle the case. I'm going to burn the house down. There will be a, a price that will get him to say, okay, the house can stand. I'm going to go get me a bigger house with all this money they're giving me. And it's not just Gruden, but it's Mrs. Gruden. Look, the, the spouse of the person who is receiving the offer has to be factored into this because Gruden can be as stubborn as he wants to be, but there will be a figure that they can't say no to. And it'll all be confidential. We won't know what it is. Well, we're not supposed to know what it is, but maybe Gruden will find a way to, to have it leaked so people understand why he decided not to burn down the NFL's house. But my guess would be, if the league ultimately exhausts all avenues to force this case into arbitration, they will offer whatever it takes to get Gruden to go away, to get Gruden to not be able to dig into that digital trail of breadcrumbs to find out who exactly leaked those emails. And also, I think the league will not want the full trove of 650,000 emails to be made available for public inspection. So Gruden's got a ton of leverage here, and it maybe helps explain why the NFL has not given the Saints a hard time for having Gruden involved as a consultant this year as they get Derek Carr up to speed. 
I think the league is nervous about where this could go. And if the league isn't nervous about it, the league should be. And, you know, one of the things I say all the time, and this is a point that was made by DeMora Smith in his recent Law Review article suggesting a scrapping of the Rooney Rule and other steps voluntarily implemented by the league to ensure fair hiring practices. Change only happens through governmental intervention or private litigation. So John Gruden's private litigation is really potentially exposing some things that happened that shouldn't have happened. You have to wonder if he can prove that the league specifically used those emails as part of a plan to force Mark Davis to fire him. And if he can prove that the league made the initial leak to the Wall Street Journal and then said to Mark Davis, essentially, you better get rid of this guy or we're going to leak even more. I don't know how to put this delicately. <laughs> At some point, you have to wonder when a prosecutor with jurisdiction over these matters is going to start looking at whether or not any criminal laws, federal or state, were violated. If there was some sort of an effort to strong arm Mark Davis into firing John Gruden. The word extortion eventually comes into play here. Using that leverage, using that, that threat that was actually a promise. If you don't do something, more emails are coming. Mark Davis didn't do anything. More emails came. And then Mark Davis was finally forced to push John Gruden out. Just something to keep in mind as this goes forward. That's one of the things the NFL needs to be concerned about. The other thing the NFL needs to be concerned about, as I have been harping on endlessly in recent weeks, because I don't want some big controversy to come along that affects the NFL in a negative way, because it affects me in a negative way. I've been very candid about that. I've been very transparent about it. I don't want the league to have its overall reputation diminished by some sort of a gambling scandal because it diminishes everyone who makes a living in and around the NFL. The rising tide lifts all boats and the sinking tide causes all boats to sink as well. So I've tried to encourage the NFL through this platform and through profootballtalk.com to, to take seriously the different ways that gambling can be an issue. And I've been paying attention to developments from other sports. And I saw that Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, recently spoke with the Associated Press. And he, he mentioned a subject that I've been concerned about for a long time. It's a chapter in Playmakers. I've written about it at PFT. The use of material non-public information, the protection of the various types of non-public information that's out there, whether it's available to players, coaches, administrative assistants, people who have access to the digital playbooks, the person who walks into the room to empty the trash can when the first 15 plays for the next game are scripted out on a whiteboard, agents who know which players are going to play or not play due to injury, agents who often make the decision for the players. That's a point that an executive raised with me yesterday from one of the teams. We were talking about this this gambling angle. 
And the person said to me, you know, I hadn't thought of the power that agents have when it comes to inside information until I read your articles. But the agents are the ones who not only know who's going to play and who isn't going to play, but the agents are often the ones who make the final decision for the player. Hey, you're not playing in this game. You've got an injury. We're going to wait this week. The agent communicates that to the team. The agent's the liaison between the player and the team. So if you get a situation where an agent is making that decision, not because of the best interest of the player, but because the agent wants to move the betting market or sell some inside information. And when we consider that the NFL has no control over the agents and the NFLPA has no specific regulation of the agents when it comes to these things, it's just left to the individual states in which the agents operate. That's a donut hole that needs to be filled. And I mention that because this is what Silver said. I think public markets work very well in this country, but the other side of a public market is the potential for insider trading. There are very sophisticated algorithms that track it. It's not that different in sports, especially when you get higher volumes of betting. You have very sophisticated computers. When they see aberrational betting, you're going to get caught. And I agree with that. If there is some sort of inside information that gets widely known and widely disseminated, or one person has it makes a massive bet that moves the markets, some flag is going to go off somewhere. And maybe that's the way that they track it back. Whoever made that bet with the benefit of the inside information, they investigate that person. How did you get it? And how did you get it? And how did you get it? And how did you get it back to the original source? That's going to happen at some point. That's how the crap is going to hit the fan. What I'm saying is, before we get to a point where there's some major investigation to figure out how someone got their hands on inside information that caused them to drop a million dollar bet or whatever, based on that information, let's come up with ways to seal off the pathways for the information to become available to someone who would then misuse it. See, I'm trying to avoid the scandal before the scandal happens, because what will happen is the scandal occurs and the NFL is going to say, well, we should probably do something about that. Instead of the NFL saying, you know what, there's all sorts of different ways that gambling and inside information could blow up in our faces. We probably should do something about it before it blows up in our faces. That's why I continue to harp on this and we'll continue to do so. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're continuing our countdown of the top 10 coaches in the National Football League. Number 10, Doug Peterson of the Jaguars. Number nine, Mike Vrabel of the Titans. Number eight. Drum roll, please. Kyle Shanahan of the San Francisco 49ers. And when I talk about number seven, I'll maybe get in a little bit more detail about why I went Shanahan eight instead of seven. But Shanahan's number eight, and he could be higher. Should be higher. I've said in the past that he's got the potential to be the next Bill Belichick. He is an excellent coach when it comes to two things. And I think he works very well with John Lynch, the GM of the team. Even though Shanahan, I think, is the guy who calls the shots. Lynch is very good at finding players who remind him of him. Guys who are rough and tumble, roll out of bed, and will kick your ass and run through a wall and don't need to practice tackling to the ground to know how to tackle you to the ground. They are a very aggressive, violent, sudden team. And I think Lynch has an uncanny knack for spotting the players who will attack in kind of a raw, visceral way that he did. Shanahan draws up offensive game plans unlike any other, with the run game being the key. He knows how to exploit weaknesses in a defense. He knows how to take advantage of trends that he sees on film. He knows how to construct blocking schemes that will pop guys free and gain major chunks of yards and completely demoralize a defense and soften it up for the pass game. His Achilles heel has been the quarterback position. He hasn't been able to find a guy who can consistently stay healthy and consistently perform at a high level. That's why he's number eight. He's number eight in part because he could have had Patrick Mahomes, but he didn't even scout Patrick Mahomes. Because as the 2017 draft approached, Shanahan believed he was going to sign Kirk Cousins as, as a free agent the next year, so he didn't bother. That's a whiff. That's a major whiff. You got to do that full study when you're in that position, when you're holding the third overall pick in the draft. And you know that your quarterback position isn't settled. You look at everyone. You study everything. You make the time to look at those incoming quarterbacks. And you may see something that you're like. Now, I think at the time, Shanahan's approach was, I want a guy who will run my offense exactly as it's designed. Because if I can find a guy who runs my offense as it's designed, if he does it effectively, the sky's the limit. And that, that's a vestige of the days where successful quarterback play was take the play that's called and run it. And if you do it right, it'll work. And we'll keep moving the ball and we'll score points. In recent years, we've seen a premium placed on the quarterback who can make chicken salad out of the play that goes haywire. And I think that the, the, the later mistake by the 49ers, the decision to trade up to get Trey Lance, who presumably brings that skill to the table, but hasn't been able to stay on the field and currently is mired at number three on the depth chart, I believe. I think that's where he's going to be when the season starts. It'll be Brock Purdy, Sam Darnold, and Trey Lance. That's another reason why Shanahan is, is, is lower than he could be. 
and lower than he should be. I mean, he's still top 10, but they've been to one Super Bowl. They, they had a rough start when he arrived. They should have won that Super Bowl. And if he if he had Kirk Cousins at quarterback for that game, they would have won that Super Bowl. And I know that the Kirk Cousins haters, and I'm in the love him, love him not camp, would 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 go, oh, oh come on. Yes, Kirk Cousins, because Kirk Cousins stays healthy. And Kirk Cousins will run the offense as it's constructed. He'll do what Kyle Shanahan wants him to do. And Shanahan knows it because he's already done it. So you got all these great players you put around Cousins. I mean, Cousins isn't going to carry a team to a championship, but he's good enough to allow himself to be carried along with a championship team. They'd have two Super Bowl wins, I believe, if they had gotten Kirk Cousins. And, and that's where the whiff when it came to Mahomes in 2017 got compounded because instead of waiting for Cousins, and Chris Sims' theory is they just freaked out because they were so bad right out of the gates. They were losing and losing and losing. We had to do something. Jimmy Garoppolo is available. Let's just go get him. Let's give up a second round pick to get him in lieu of waiting for Kirk Cousins. So first mistake, not scouting Mahomes. Second mistake, not holding firm on the desire to get Kirk Cousins and going after Jimmy Garoppolo instead. Third mistake, trading up for Trey Lance. It's only gone right with the selection of Brock Purdy with the final pick in the 2022 draft assuming he can stay healthy. Everything was fine until it wasn't. Will he be healthy for week one? If not him, will it be Sam Darnold? And that's the only thing I think holding me back from saying this is the Super Bowl favorite out of the NFC. I think it's still going to be the Eagles because we just don't know what the 49ers are going to be able to do and are they going to be able to stay healthy, especially at the quarterback position. So Shanahan, number eight. And... If he can settle down that quarterback position and get consistent play and get to a Super Bowl again and win it, he's going to go up dramatically on that list. All right, let's look at a few questions here. I was having issues with Twitter. Let me try it again. I don't know what the deal is. All right, here we go. Question time. PFTP and Posse, if the Cardinals are on track for the number one overall pick when Kyler Murray is ready to come back, do you see them keeping him sidelined to avoid losing it? This is kind of the soft tank. This is the, hey, things are going well here because we stink without Kyler Murray. And Kyler Murray is ready to play, and maybe Kyler Murray comes back and we start winning games, and then we don't have the number one pick anymore. So they could come up with a way to say, he's not ready, he's not ready, he's not ready. We don't want to put him at risk of further injury in a lost season. We're going to continue to allow him to recover from this torn ACL. There's an easy way to do that without admitting that you're just deliberately trying to grab the first overall pick. But again, this assumes that that Caleb Williams, the USC quarterback, would want to play for them. But even if he doesn't, they'll get a nice return if they trade out of that top spot and end up keeping Kyler Murray. PFTP and Posse, serious question. Oh, serious question. You've been an NFL influencer for a long time. Where would you rank yourself and or PFT as a whole on the list of most influential people in the NFL atmosphere? I That's not for me to decide. We just do what we do. And if we have influence, so be it. If we don't, we don't. But I do know this. A very high percentage of people with influence in the NFL 
read everything that we write, including a large number of owners, large number of coaches, all the agents, all of the media covering the NFL, and more and more players all the time. So to the extent that they're all parked here at PFT, reading the same words, seeing the same opinions expressed, if that has influence, so be it. Another one from PFTPM Policy. I'm giving him a third one because this one helps me with my side hustle of trying to get you to purchase Father of Mine. And I sent at my son's suggestion because Bobby, who runs the PFTPM Posse account, had entered the weekly giveaway contest. And I mentioned to my son at some point that, yeah, he enters every week. He enters every week. And my son said, you should just send the guy one. He's a nice guy. And I guess my son's interacted with him in the past. He said, just send him one. Just send him one. So I sent him one. So he says, I started reading Father of Mine yesterday. I love the book so far, especially the short chapters, because I always look for how long a chapter is before reading to see if I have the time and I read more. I even ordered my dad a copy as he was interested in PFT has helped our relationship. Well, thank you very much, Bobby. And look, I I tried to write a book that I would want to read. I think that's the ultimate test of whether or not something's going to work. That's how PFT came to be. I created the online destination that I would visit. So when it's time for me to write a book, I try to write a book that I would want to read. And I like short chapters. I always look at how long the chapter is going to be. What am I getting myself into here? And most of the chapters are a thousand words or less. So you can read one and you can put it down. Or you can read two and you can put it down. But you know what you're getting yourself into. The chapters are all short. There are more than 100 of them, but they're all short. It's just like Playmakers. There's more than 110 essays in Playmakers, and they're all 1,000 to 2,000 words. So that's how I like writing. It's how I like reading. Some of the stuff I've written since then, the chapters are a little bit longer, but still, I don't like those chapters that just go on and on and on forever. It drives me crazy. I like something shorter. I think it just fits our mentality these days. We have shorter attention spans. So anything we're going to present to someone else to consume needs to be shorter than it would have been in past years. All right, uh, Macy chiming in, and and uh, the pause working very well on her cell phone device. Are you going to watch start Netflix's quarterback series while at the beach, or wait until you get home so we can watch it together? I'm probably going to wait till I get home because I'm just going to have a hard time making the time to watch that. I my routine here is when I wake up. I try to get three stories posted before it's time to get ready for PFTPM. Do PFTPM, grab something quick for lunch, and then go do something, whether it's ride a bike, hit the beach, do whatever. And I try to take a few hours in the afternoon to actually enjoy the vacation, swing back around, post a few more stories before dinner. And by the time dinner time rolls around, and more importantly, by the time the beverages are flowing, that's it for me until the next morning. If I wake up the next morning, I have two more next mornings to wake up for before uh, it's time to check out and go home. Tyler Hergert, is the NFL keeping a close eye on the Live Golf PGA Tour news in case the public investment fund wants to be in business with them? And where would and would there be as much outrage over the public investment fund being involved with the NFL as there has been with golf? Oh, I can imagine that anyone involved in any sport in America is paying attention to what happens with this scrutiny of the Saudi Arabian investment in golf. I saw something yesterday that it, at one point, Roger Goodell was supposed to speak out in favor of the merger. And then he ultimately didn't. 
as I've said, it all comes down to whether or not Saudi Arabia wants to make a play for an NFL team. And if the NFL slams the door in their face, if the NFL won't change the rules to allow Saudi Arabia to buy all or part of a team, that's when they have to worry about a competitor to the National Football League. And I, as I said yesterday, that element of me that just loves a little chaos, we get a lot of chaos out of that. If there's an in-season competitor with the NFL funded by an unlimited pool of money that can go out and target NFL players, incoming players, free agents who are not under contract and can be pilfered, that's that could be an interesting ride if and when it ever happens. Hunter Wallace, if Brock Purdy is healthy week one, assuming he got some reps at training camp, does he start immediately? Did he prove enough last year? I think he's the starter if he's healthy. I think Kyle Shanahan's basically said that. The real question is, is he healthy? And if he's not, I think it's going to be Sam Darnold. I think Trey Lance, they're not going to trade him. They're keeping him around because last year they had to use QB3. They're going to keep Lance around. He's relatively cheap as backup quarterbacks go because he's under his rookie contract still. I think they're going to keep him, but I think he's going to be the third man up. And it's going to be Sam Darnold if Brock Purdy isn't able to go. Here's a question. Is there any chance moving forward that Deshaun Watson could ever win comeback player of the year or MVP in the eyes of the voters? I, I think that it's possible, but you have that human element. We talked about that recently with Hall of Fame voting. It's human beings who make these decisions. So. Look, MVP is undeniable. I think he's got a better chance to win MVP than comeback player of the year because his his comeback year is this year. And DeMar Hamlin, all he has to do is suit up for one game and he's the comeback player of the year unanimously. Now, if Watson struggles this year and then next year has a great season, maybe. See, it's got to be Deshaun Watson coming back from something other than what he's currently coming back from. So let's say he's horrible this year and then next year he's great, he's coming back from a horrible 2023. It's an, it's an easier sell to make. But if he comes out this year and plays really well, what's he coming back from? He's coming back from a self-inflicted absence due to allegedly aberrant behavior off the field. It's hard to reward him for that. It's, it, it's and, and, and again, DeMar Hamlin's already got it locked up, so it's not going to be an issue. So... Could Watson win it at some point down the road? Yes, once he gets far enough removed from the perception that he's coming back from the off-field situation that he created for himself. MVP is undeniable. If he's the best player, he's the best player. If he's got the best numbers, he's got the best numbers. If the Browns are the number one seed in the AFC, I mean, that's how it usually goes. We spend so much time talking about it as the season unfolds, which is fine because it helps us get through the, the days, fills up the a lot of time on the shows, but it's usually the quarterback of one of the number one seeds. So if the Browns are the one seed in the AFC, he's got a good chance to be the MVP. And it may come down to whether or not he can edge out whoever the quarterback of the number one seed in the NFC is. But if it was Jalen Hurts versus Deshaun Watson, and then you look at their numbers, only if Watson would have significantly greater numbers, I think could Watson do it. But I still think he can. Sam Eichenlaub, interesting question. What is your biggest buyer's remorse purchase? And what is something you purchased that you ended up enjoying more than you thought? I'd have to give that some thought. Biggest buyer's remorse. I don't like buyer's remorse. I don't like regret. 
if there's something I regret, I just keep going and I don't think about it. So I, cause I don't want to feel like I made a mistake, not, not, not because of any warped ego. I just, if I feel like I made a mistake and I spent too much time breaking it down and thinking about it, then maybe I'm hesitant to act in the future. There's an impulse that I know that I trust. It's a visceral sense of this is what I should do. And it usually, it usually pushes me in the right direction. And sometimes maybe it gets you knocked off kilter a little bit, but I don't wallow in that because I don't want to undermine what I think is a pretty good internal barometer of the right decisions to make in any setting, whatever context, whatever it is, buying a car, buying a house, doing this, doing that. So that's a long way of saying, I really don't know without thinking about it, but I try not to have remorse about anything. So I don't know what I would admit to. Andrew Tuttle with the one helmet rule now gone and some teams announcing plans to wear throwback uniforms this year. What is one old uniform you would like to see a team bring back that it hasn't so far? I mean, this is easy. I want the Vikings to bring back their 70s era uniforms with that helmet, with that purple, not matte, the glossy purple, the jerseys that in the Metrodome actually kind of looked a little blue. I'd love for them to bring them back, not just for a limited engagement. I want them to ditch the Nikeified uniform, bring back, get, get rid of the 3D horn. I don't need the shading to tell me it's a horn. I like the old original horn. Bring back the original horn. Bring back the original helmet uh, finish. Bring back the original uniforms. If not temporarily, permanently. Or if not permanently, I'll settle for temporarily. Dalip Rao, when was the last time a quarterback fell off a cliff like Russell Wilson and actually rebounded to anything like his previous play? I guess it would be Kurt Warner. Remember, Kurt Warner went from being league MVP, two-time Super Bowl participant, to just kind of washing out of St. Louis, went to the Giants, got benched in Eli Manning's rookie year. One of the questions about him getting into the Hall of Fame was dealing with what Peter King referred to as the donut hole in his career when it tailed off with the Rams, his time with the Giants. Then he had this resurgence with the Cardinals that got him over the top and got him into the Hall of Fame. So, you know, Russell Wilson needs to be concerned that this trend from last year doesn't continue indefinitely because it could undermine his case for the Hall of Fame. We'll see if he can turn it around. If he can't this year, though, there's a good chance. We've talked about this before with his contract, and there's 35, 40 million that becomes fully guaranteed in March of next year. If, if it's another stinker for Russell Wilson, number one, it's not going to be Sean Payton's fault. And number two, I don't think Russell Wilson will be the quarterback of the team in 2024. Matt and St. Pete had a question about the Gruden lawsuit and uh, the ESPN report, but we've already addressed that. Henry Livingston, why do you say Mike Vrabel isn't on the hot seat, but you've discussed Sean McDermott being fired if he doesn't finally kick in the door when McDermott has arguably done more with less and the Titans have consistently underachieved in the playoffs? Um, McDermott's got Josh Allen and Mike Vrabel doesn't. That's why the bar's higher for Sean McDermott. Vrabel has done more with less. Vrabel was the number one seed with 91 players on his 53-man roster at some point in the 2021 season. And last year, he had over 80 players on his 53-man roster. At one point, the 2022 Titans were potentially going to break the record of the 2021 Titans for total number of players used in a full season. So 
look, I think there was a real disconnect between Mike Vrabel and John Robinson. Robinson ultimately got fired. I mean, Vrabel didn't want to get rid of AJ Brown. I remember the, the, the neck thing and pacing around and wanting to throw somebody through a wall when they traded AJ Brown on draft day, 2022. So I, I think that Vrabel, uh, look, he, he's got a, a winning percentage of 58.5% with a Titans team that does not have an overwhelming cluster of superstar talent. He's uh, a guy who coached the team to the number one seed in 2021. In 2019, they went on the road and knocked off the Ravens, who were the one seed, with league MVP Lamar Jackson. He had four straight winning seasons before last year going 7-10. and 10. I, I think Vrabel is underrated, um, and uh, that's why he came in at number nine on our list. Okay. Please explain the supplemental draft. What is it and why is it needed? Well, the supplemental draft was created because there are certain circumstances where a player who wasn't eligible to be drafted during the regular April draft becomes available to play in the 20, well, in the upcoming season. So if you weren't eligible for whatever reason for the 2023 draft, but you suddenly become eligible to join an NFL team for the 2023 season, you just don't sign with someone as a free agent. They go through the supplemental draft process. And it's a very simple analysis. If you use a pick, let's say you use first round pick in the supplemental draft in a given year, 2023, you, you, you basically traded in your 2024 first round pick. You're getting to use next year's pick prematurely. And it doesn't work like the draft where someone's on the clock. What it does is it's round by round. They'll do round one. Who submits a pick for any of the players? And anybody that wants to use a pick in that round on one of the players locks in. And whoever sits highest on the priority list gets the player. So... Uh, it's it's kind of a weird process, and they didn't do it at all for a few years. They did it this year. There were two guys in the pool. Neither of them got drafted. There have been some great players that have trickled through the supplemental draft in the in the past. But, you know, the, the process now, because guys can enter after three years removed from graduating high school, and we see more and more guys getting early playing time, they're ready to go, they're ending the draft in the normal course. We just don't see as many trying to have to find creative ways to work their way into the draft. Um, but it's there because if guys who weren't available to be drafted in April become available and eligible to join the NFL after that, for whatever reason, you can't just let them go sign with whoever. Although, as you know, that would be my preference generally. Sergeant Stadenko is rooting for the gift that we use today to be a home video of me, the little kid getting wiped out by the wave as he was trying to position a chair in the beach. That is not a home video of me. Trumpton Riot, why has Sky Sports stopped showing you? Dude, we're on hiatus. PFT Live is on hiatus. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I've done it every day except one since the hiatus started. PFTPM is back during our annual hiatus. We'll be back on Sky Sports July 24. And eventually we'll be live at least on Fridays. There was a point, it, it was, was it last season? They told us at one point we were going to be live every day, that they were going to take our show live and not show Good Morning Football live. And I think somebody somebody at 345 Park Avenue probably did not take kindly to that. And the next thing you know, we were back to being tape delayed, except on Fridays. For whatever reason, we were live on Fridays. 
and maybe we'll be live on Fridays again. Um, <laughs> somebody's asking, I can't tell whether this is tongue in cheek or not. Are the Jets able to invoke the fifth or possibly the 14th amendment and sue the league to not be on hard knocks? No, they've signed up for it. Now, Hey, we should want this. We should want a team that doesn't want to be the focal point of hard knocks to be the focal point of hard knocks. That's reality. We're going to get some reality from the New York Jets. And who knows? Maybe they'll just insist on taking out everything. Like, it's only going to be the most basic crap. Anything remotely interesting is just going to be on the cutting room floor so nobody watches the New York Jets on hard knocks. I'm I'm having an issue with... um, Twitter today, and I don't know what happened. Our profile is showing up empty on my computer and on my phone. The other folks who who work with me said it's fine, but I noticed this just about a half hour before we started taping that you go to Pro Football Talk and the profile was just completely empty. There was nothing there. And then there were just like bits and pieces there. So I don't know what's going on. We're going to have to look into this after we wrap up today. Uh, and I probably should wrap up. Um, if I didn't get to your question and you think of it tomorrow, ask it tomorrow. I'm just, I, I've got to call it. Uh, I, I see several others I could answer, but I'm going to get off on a tangent. And the next thing you know, this will go longer than I wanted it to. It already has. I've been trying, I told myself this week I was going to do 30 minutes per day. And every day it's been well over 30 minutes, more like 45 minutes. Some days I think even longer than that, but we're three for three tomorrow. And it's going to be a challenge because tonight could get a little hectic. Tonight could get a little, could get a little inebriated, but I'm still going to do my best to roll out of bed, snap my toupee into place and come down here to do day four and hopefully then day five of PFTPM from the beach here in South Carolina. And remember, we're back July 24 with PFT live two hours live every morning on Peacock, and maybe live some mornings on Sky Sports. But we're always available around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Hopefully, we'll see you back here again tomorrow. longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal it probably won't go well so set a limit when you gamble and stick to it want more helpful tips like this go to keep for games quizzes and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand